Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Uh, today's guest is Brendan Kumarasamy. He is the host of Master Talk on, you've seen him on YouTube. He teaches individuals, corporate leaders, uh, very successful people on how to effectively communicate. And you're like, why are we having a guy like Brendan from Master Talk on the podcast. This is a suicide prevention podcast because one of the things that is so pressing is our inability to effectively communicate our thoughts, ideas, and our stories. And it's not just about expressing our thoughts, ideas, and stories when we're in pain of like, oh, I'm depressed or I'm sad. But even when we just want to connect and and make friends and give a presentation, I mean, people have I've gotten stories from people who want to end their lives because they got a, a F on a presentation or an F because they failed a class or because uh, they tried to talk to a girl and then the girl rejected them. So communication in general is something that I feel. It's so important for us all to learn. I'm excited to have you on, Brendan, for Master Talk. Thank you for being here. Hey, it's good to be here, Leo, and my pleasure to serve. Um, so one of the, you know, you have uh, uh, so many videos up on YouTube about how to effectively communicate, how to present, um, and, and how to tell your story. What's your backstory? Like, what, what was the, the moment you're like, this is my purpose and my drive? Yeah, for sure, Leah. So for me, the story began in business school. I studied in accounting, funny enough, which is literally the opposite of what I do today. So I was a numbers guy. And while I was in business school, I did these things called case competitions. They give it like professional sports, but for nerds. So while other guys my age are playing rugby or baseball or football or basketball or some other sport you probably wouldn't see me playing, I did presentations competitively that's how i learned how to speak but then as i got older leo i realized as i was coaching other students on how to speak so they could win case competitions i accidentally developed a talent in communication coaching and then a few years after that i had the idea for master talks i said hey you know everything i'm teaching them isn't really available for free on the internet so i started making videos and the rest was history so you went from numbers, basically connecting numbers and connecting those dots to connecting people and teaching them how to talk. What, what even made you think that the numbers and accounting was the direction you wanted to go to? Was that just like a safe career option? Was that something your parents wanted to do? And then how hard was that for you to make that transition? Yeah. So when I was 12 years old, it was my last semester before I went to high school, career counselor comes up to us, Leo, and says, hey, you guys got to figure out your life. And of course, when you're 12 years old, you don't really take life seriously. But the reason I did was because my parents were factory workers on minimum wage. So that was the catalyst of my life that said, hey, I need to figure this out or else we're screwed. So I went back to the drawing board and I went online and I did this thing called the process of elimination, which is a framework I teach, where it's a lot easier to say no to something than it is to say yes to something. Example, it's a lot easier for me to go, you know what, I don't want to be a pastor. I don't really want to be a dentist or I don't want to be a doctor. So I, took, I made a list of all the careers, Leo, on a Wikipedia page, and I started scratching out the careers I didn't want to do. 
And then I focused on the careers that I thought I'd be good at. So I wasn't really thinking about passion. I was just thinking about ways to make money and provide for my family. I didn't really care whether I was passionate about it at the time. I just cared if it made money and I wasn't too miserable doing it. That was my focus in early stages of my life. And the reason accounting came up was because I was really talented at math and I was terrible at everything else. So accounting was actually a field I chose for myself. Well, everyone else in their 12, they go, I want to be an astronaut, or I guess today the 12-year-olds want to be a YouTuber. I, I wanted to be an accountant, and I never changed my mind until, until I actually got the job and I found success in it. You said you had a talent in math and you were terrible at everything else. The, so do you think had you had exposure to public speaking or debate in school that you may have discovered that talent? Or do you, did you think that it really was a byproduct of you're working on one skill and it kind of built on another skill and then you, you found yourself in a public speaking realm? Really fascinating question, Leo, that I've actually never thought about <laughs> until you mentioned it. In my opinion, I don't think I would have. I'll tell you why, though. The reason is because from the ages of five to 16, I actually, I studied in French because when you're in Montreal, you need to know how to speak the language. So my parents put me through an education system in French. So if I had done debate in, in school, it would have had to been in that language and I would have sucked because I'm not that great in my second language. I can keynote in French today, but I'm not, a, I'm not as shabby as I am with English. So it really took a, a, a language change. So when I went to college, 17, 18, 19, slash university, I actually switched back to it um, an English medium. So that's when I started doing everything in English. And that's when I discovered case competition and I started excelling. And that's when I knew I was talented at speaking. So were you the guy that was, you know, able to talk to all the girls and had a bunch of friends or did you go through that awkward teenage angst of, hey, uh, somebody want to dance? I have yet to be in a relationship even, even as of today. So, <laughs> so I definitely was, I'm, I'm, I'm an outgoing guy. I'm not going to say I'm some super shy library kid, though I did study really hard. So I never really had trouble around social. But for me, the, the struggle was socializing in my second language. So because English wasn't my, uh, so because French wasn't my first language, everyone I, hang, I hung out with at school, their first language was French. So it was really hard for me to, to really connect with them. So I had to find the Anglophones in the group and, and befriend them. The other challenge I had that you might not know is I have a crooked left arm. I have a disability in my left arm. So because of that, people didn't really want to talk to me, especially when I was much younger and I had a cast on. So I had those challenges growing up. But I don't think, uh, and definitely girls for sure, I had a lot of challenges with them too. But, but I don't think I had challenges with uh, socializing though that much. Is there a name for the disability in your left arm? Not really. Basically, what happened was when I was born, and this happens one in a thousand surgeries, where if the, the body of the mother is too small, they pull me out with a vacuum. So they either pull, they either pull you out the vacuum, or they cut the mother's stomach open. And sometimes one in a thousand, something goes wrong, where like there's a mis malfunction in the vacuum or something happens. And I ended up being that one in 1000. So my left, the left side of my body kind of dislocated a little bit. And today, most of it is just in my arm, but it's, you know, it works just fine. But that's, that's what happened. But there's no really, really a name to that. How did your parents help you process that? Or, or was there even a conversation about it? Was it one of those things where we're just not going to talk about it? Or was there a, a way that they helped you to frame it that you found empowering or the opposite? Yeah, for sure. So we never really we, we never really talked about it 
in in general like how to process the emotion i don't think my parents had the tools for that they kind of did the best they could with with what they had and they did a great job but i think i think for me the big challenge i had was the labels that other family members would ascribe to me like oh they would always like touch my hand every time they'd be around me and like hope it gets better as if there was a problem with me but the reason i never really felt it later in my life is no one really brought it up in school because it's not like I have a missing arm. Like I, I met a guy once who didn't have a, I mean, multiple times, but a few times where they, he doesn't even have a left arm and the guy's playing pool like billiards. And I'm just like, as if a life is normal. So I think the reason it never bothered me as I got older and the reason I just bring it up is to inspire people rather is because no one ascribed a label to me. Like nobody said, oh, like he's got an arm, so, except my other family members. So those people, I kind of, uh, I kind of had to set straight a little bit. But other than that, not not really. That's interesting. This idea that you had to set your family members straight, and that that's where you felt the bulk of the, the, the I don't know the, the the tension in in terms of it being brought up. How did you do that? And I'm asking this question because so many of us have a thing that we are either self conscious of, or that people point at, or uh, discussing whether it's our weight or you know, our skin, whatever it is, how did you confront them in a way that was assertive and not aggressive or passive? Absolutely. That's a fantastic question. So, so there's a couple of thoughts there, right? The, the first one is we can't change everybody. So I would say a large percentage of those family members, I don't really talk to that much because they were never really supportive of me in general, or I didn't really spend that much time with them. So a lot of them didn't really require the conversation. I would say, I would say with the others though, the conversation was really largely about, hey, you know, look at everything that I've accomplished. Like I don't appreciate the fact that you keep mentioning it. It doesn't help me. It doesn't help you. Let's just enjoy our life. So so it wasn't as nuanced. I wish I had the the perfect answer. But but I think today, if I were if I were giving advice to myself, the better version of the answer today would look something more like you start with gratitude. Right, you show appreciation for what that person has done in your life, especially if it's a very close relationship. I got lucky; like my really close relationships didn't bother me too much. But if it was the case, I would start with gratitude. Hey, you've already done all these amazing things in my life, and then I would get into the feedback. But you know, you keep mentioning this, and it's making me feel such and such. Let's try and not do that. But the last part to that, Leo, before I throw it back to you, is I don't recommend people start with difficult conversations. I know we'll, we'll get into the, the advice a little bit more, but I always like starting with easy conversations. Even if I know this is a suicide prevention podcast, we should start with something really easy first because people who might be suicidal might be really timid. I mean, they'll never talk about the challenges they're going through in the context of this show, let alone something else. So for me, it's more about saying, let's start with the easy stuff first. And we build up that confidence over time. Yeah, I, I love that. I've been I just had to practice that the other day, actually, with my girlfriend, where uh, there was something I was upset about, and I immediately said what it was, and then I could I could see that she didn't take it too well. You know, it, it the impact didn't it didn't land the way it played out in my head, and so I you know I stepped back, I took a moment, and then I re-engaged with starting off what I was grateful for. I said, thank you for A, thank you for B. I wish we could have did C differently, you know? And then she was like, well, thank you for taking the time to, you know, uh, approach it differently. 
And you're right. So starting off with the gratitude or what you're thankful for first so that you're acknowledging their role and what they've done well. And then like, all right, and here's the thing that is bothering me. I, I completely agree. I think your framework's better than mine, actually. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so I, I'm really excited because, you know, I, I went down a rabbit hole of your videos on YouTube on, on Master Talk, and I recommend um, everyone go check it out because you, you do two really things, you do two things that I, or three things that I love so well. One is uh, it's so concise, and you typically have like three bullet points of to support whatever your opening statement is, whether it's like, how to tell your story, how to have more confidence, how to improve your posture, um, et cetera, et cetera. And then the second thing that you you do really well is, um, man, my brain just froze, but uh, I had it right there because I was. Going you were talking about the three bullet points and the videos. Yeah. You had the three. You had the three bullet points. The short and concise, but the, I forget what the other two are. But well, we'll it'll come back in my brain. But. Uh, oh, the other thing you do is the, their ability to break down how other people give talks. Um, because, you know, you have Esther Perel, you have Adam Grant, you have all these different people that other people may be more familiar with. And then it it makes you it, it gives you more credibility, but also then, you know, allows me to lean in a little further. The one talk that you gave was on storytelling. And I really love this because I found myself in social gatherings where people are like, well, what's your story? And you're like, how do I, how do I tell my, like, like, do we have time for my story? And what part of the story do I tell? Can you talk to us? Because on your video, when you talked about telling your story, you, you mentioned the, the power of like talking through emotions and not facts. And I'm uh, highlighting, I, I, I'm not to cut off, but I'm highlighting that because one, I hear it at social gatherings. And two, my girlfriend is always like, so what happened today? And I'm like, how do I tell the story of my day? I love that, Leo. Great points. So so let's start with this because because you, you had brought up a couple of interesting points. One is that storytelling is really contextual, especially in the context of the show. Like if somebody asks you your story at a bar, and you mean the first time you're like, well, do I talk about suicide <laughs> or did I get right into it? Or is it more like where I'm from? And in that case, it might be the latter. It might be more like, hey, where I'm from, that you kind of build it up based on gauging their energy because we don't want to traumatize people as we as we meet them. And then, you know, your girlfriend, what kind of story she tells when you're giving a workshop? What kind of story is that? So the simple idea here, Leo, is communication and storytelling starts with the key outcome first. What are we trying to achieve? The problem with storytelling in general is a lot of us just ramble on forever. We all have that friend in our life who goes, Leo, you can't believe what happened last week. You're like, yeah, tell me, brother, tell me. And then 25 minutes into the story, you're like, geez, like, when is this guy going to stop talking? Like, it just keeps going and going and going. And there's no end to the story. So for me, the first part is to write a bunch of outcomes. Let me give you an example with me. What's my big outcome today? My big outcome is I want to convince people that anyone can be an exceptional communicator. And that doesn't need to be speaking on a stage. That could also mean having difficult conversation. But then I'll create in my mind before, let's say this call, a bunch of story ideas that I have that helps me prove the point that anyone could be a great speaker. 
So I can go in a bunch of different directors. I could talk about the story of another speaker. I could talk about my personal story. I could talk about statistics, how people have gotten better over time. And I just tried all of them, Leah. And it turns out that the one that works the best is always my personal story. Because whenever I say, hey, look, guys, which is true, I grew up in a city called Montreal. I presented in a language I didn't know. I have a crooked left arm. And the, the guy who's the communication expert on the podcast has a bachelor's degree in accounting. Heck, if I could do it, I think anyone else can do it. And that really resonates with people. But the key point here, Leo, is really to try a bunch of things. So let's go back into your example now to close this point, which is, let's say your girlfriend is going like, how do I tell the story? Well, what's the goal? Is the goal to entertain the boyfriend? Is the goal to tell her girlfriends? Because that's different. Because if it's telling you the story and just getting to the point, you don't want the story to be too long because you're a guy. But if it's more the girlfriends, the girls in her life, essentially, where she's telling the story to, it might be a bit longer because they want every little detail because Tony Robbins calls that the meta report. It's just how women communicate in general. They like to talk about every detail. An example of what I mean here is when you ask a guy how's their day was, they always say good. Yeah, it was good. It was cool. Like it was a good day. Whereas when you ask a woman the same question, they'll go, okay, so it started here at 9 a.m. This is what happened at 10. And here's what happened at 11 and at 12. They just feel that need to tell every detail. It's just how they're biologically wired. It's perfectly normal. So the outcome will change the story and how it's being delivered. I did not realize that. You're so right. When I talk to my female friends, I mean, they, I mean, I mean, just sticking with Michelle, like it is uh, eight o'clock did this, 8.15 that, nine o'clock that. And I'm just like, yeah, it was a, it was cool. Like, yeah, it was the day was dope, you know, unless there was something insane that happened, like a car exactly. accident or some, you know, some huge blip. But I'm just like, yeah, I got I got the work done. Like everything is everything is cool. So that's fascinating. Um, and and I also realize that the when you if you are giving a um, you know, talking about your entire day to break it up by asking questions to to check in. Like if I say, hey, you know, I had, so I had breakfast at eight o'clock this morning. It was eggs and toast and blah, blah, blah. What did you have for breakfast? Kind of like playing like a tennis game of, and then coming back to, so at nine o'clock I did blah, blah, blah. What did you blah, blah, blah. So kind of having that back and forth so you don't feel like you're just like, you know, reading off your itinerary or, you know, presenting before the probation uh, office, you know. <laughs> well well that will depend right leah so so if the if the woman is talking about her day honestly you shouldn't even interrupt to just let her talk about her day for 10 minutes and she'll go wow my boyfriend's so amazing but if it's a man interacting with uh, a man interacting with a, a woman you probably want to summarize it and be done and focus on listening to her but then if it's woman and woman then in that case you might want to interrupt each other and keep the keep the conversation going but yeah yeah, and that's you know, and I, I I'm realizing that it's also be, uh, about energy because sometimes you could have a woman with masculine energy and a male with feminine energy, and and realize that the, the woman doesn't talk much in this demand that you know, yada 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 the the whole way through, and and so that becomes interesting because you see that when there's two women talking, like there's the the masculine and the feminine um, involved in that also. Um, I also love how you talked about listening and how to listen. And this is key because I think the better we become at being able to listen to other people, the ba the better we're able to communicate how we want to be listened to because we all want to feel seen, heard, and understood. And 
you had these dinner party questions that you ask people. Can you can you give us an example of one? One of my favorites is the um, if you had all the money in the world, how would you spend your time? Versus how would you spend the money? Can you tell us why that is uh, delineated? You are so well studied. It feels like you've seen every single one of my videos. You know them better than I do, Leo. <laughs> so yes, the, these are what I call 80-20 questions. We all know the 80-20 principle, which is what are 20% of the actions that we take that can drive 80% of the results? So I kind of spin this a little bit and I ask myself, what are 20% of the questions that we can ask each other as human beings that can drive 80% of the clarity in one's life? And you had mentioned one of them which is, hey, if you had all the money in the world, how would you spend your time? That's one. Another great question as well is, what's a, a goal or a dream that you secretly gave up on on why? This is probably for the more mature dinner tables, maybe not the ones where you're just getting to know people, but that might be fun depending on the context. I like that one. Another one I like too is, if you could only accomplish three things in your life, what would you want to accomplish and why? Just three things. And that really gets you to focus. But the other point that I want to drive here, Leo, around listening, and you touched upon it too, is you know, a lot of us say listening is important, but how do you actually practice it? How do you actually get better at it? And here's the way that I've done it. I call it the goals call. Very practical, tangible. You can just literally do this the next day. Pick one person in your life. You could do this with your girlfriend if you want, or like a best friend who's growth-minded. Sit them down for 45 minutes and do three things on that call. Number one is look at them and say, hey, tell me what your top three goals are for the year and why each of those goals are important to you. So give them five to 10 minutes to just write down their top three goals for the year in any area of life and why those three goals are important. Number two, when they start telling you everything, write down every little detail that that person is saying, Leo. And then restate what that person is saying. Example, hey, just to make sure I got that, Leo, you said goal number one was X, goal number two was Y, goal number two is, uh, goal number three is Z, and these are why these three goals are important to you. Anything else you'd like to add or did I get everything right? And then you restate that way. And then that person goes, yes, that's great, and then I'll add more details. And then for the rest of the call, this is the most important piece to mastering the goals call. The rest of the call, you are not allowed to give advice. You're not allowed to give any advice. The only thing you're allowed to do besides restating whatever that person says throughout the whole call is ask clarifying questions. Let me give you an example. Let's say somebody, let's say I'm having a goals call with somebody, Leo, and you don't need to be a coach to do this. You could literally be anybody. And they say, hey, you know, I want to get more fit. Like, I just want to be fit. And that's their goal. So I'll ask clarifying questions. What does fit mean to you, Leo? Does that mean you want to lose some weight? Does that mean you want to work out at the gym more frequently? What do you want to work on more? Uh, muscle mass? Do you want to get a six pack this year? What does that look like in your life? That's one example. Somebody wants to grow the podcast. What are your downloads at right now? What do you want it to be next year? What would be a 10 out of 10 result for you? So you start not peppering questions as quickly as I'm doing right now, because I'm just giving a bunch of examples. But you ask one question at a time, you just listen, you restate. If you do that with 10 different people, Leo, your listening skills will skyrocket tenfold. I absolutely love that. That reminds me of that book, Never Split the Difference, where he, he talks about listening and then uh, mirroring back what they're saying to make sure that you understand what they're saying. Because I, I've often found that 
what I'm hearing and what they think they're saying can often be two different things. And also it's, it, it ties into this idea of um, digging a little deeper so that the person, instead of me trying to fix and come up with the answers, you're allowing the person to come up with solutions to their own problems. And because and nobody wants to be told what to do, and they're more likely to stick with it if they feel like they came up with it on their own versus being told what to do. So, yeah, I really love that. that that's, that's super powerful. Um, you know, you had this presentation on how to talk to a hostile um, uh, audience. And it, it stood out to me because people who struggle with depression often find neutral faces to be hostile. Hmm. So you could be walking down a street, you see someone, and because their face is neutral, you go, that person doesn't like me, or they're upset, or they're mad. And one of the things that you mentioned was to act like the questions are coming from Bill Gates or someone else that you would love to engage with or talk to. Can you talk to us about that? Because I actually have been practicing that. When I walk down the street now, I imagine everyone wants a hug from me. I go, man, this person, I go, man, we're about to hug. Oh, this is about to go down. And it just changes the energy in a body language. Absolutely. And once again, you know the video better than me. Honestly, it feels like you made it. <laughs> but but yes, Lee, I mean, you're absolutely right on that, which is when you start to really imagine as if you're talking to people you really like, it makes communication more fun. Because the problem here has very little to do with communication technique. It's more about communication energy. What is your energy around communication? And if you feel negative around communication in general, that is the energy that you project onto other people. Let me use a different analogy that I think drives this point on because you had touched upon the other one really well. Going back to those difficult questions you had asked me earlier, hey, Brendan, how do we have those difficult conversations? For me, it always starts with something easy. Let's go through boundaries for a second. Boundaries allow us to protect our mental health because we know if we know how to communicate them properly, it makes our life better, right? So one piece of that is picking the easiest boundary that you want somebody else to respect from the best person in your life so that the boundary conversation is fun. Let me give you an example of what I mean. One common thing we say a lot in relationships is I need more alone time. But the problem with that sentence, Leo, is it could mean a million different things. It could mean, hey, I want to be in a cave for two weeks. Don't text me. That could mean, hey, I want to read a book for 15 minutes in the morning to clear my mind and I'm good for the rest of the day. That could mean I need 20 minutes in the evening walking the dog on my own. That could be what alone time means. But if we don't clarify that, then it gets interpreted as, as it could be, this person doesn't love me. This person doesn't want to be around me. This person doesn't care about me. So if you don't communicate what it means, people will interpret it in the wrong way. So instead of saying, I need more alone time, babe, or friend in your life or family member in your life, you just say, hey, babe, I would love 15 minutes in the morning to read because it helps me clear my mind. Is that okay with you? And that's how we set a great boundary. But the key here, much like the doing the easy thing first, go into your, the relationship you care about with your mom. I live with my mom, my sister, so I do this with them all the time. We pick something really easy. And I ask them, 
So I don't go there with my boundary. I go into that conversation and I say, hey, mom, I'm thinking of trying something new. Give me one boundary that you think I can help you with better. That's easy. And then we'll work on it. And then I'll respect it. She'll get happier and then she'll want to reciprocate. And that's how you'll have the easy conversation. And then you learn the language of conflict resolution. And then when you start there with the easy stuff, like, okay, what should we have for dinner on Friday nights? Okay, let's just do fish every Friday and salmon every Thursday and chicken every Wednesday. And you kind of just come to an agreement. Then you're well prepared. You're well practiced to have the very difficult conversation. I love this idea of practice, practicing setting boundaries instead of trying to set the hard boundary immediately. That makes so much more sense. It's kind of like the foot in the door technique of, okay, I can set a boundary with this very small thing. And then, like you said, learn the language of it so that I can build up to bigger things. That's, that's beautiful, brother. Um, I want to kind of go back to what we talked about mirroring techniques. And the reason why I, I, I really want you to explain what that is, is, you know, when we're having mental health issues and struggling with depression, and anxiety, we tend to take what people say at face value. And we've already addressed this in, in different ways, where if somebody says, I hate you, or I don't, you know, I, I want more alone time, instead of like being more curious and, and drilling down, we just react to what was said, and we don't really get clarification. Can you talk to us about the importance of, of one, how to mirror what that is, and then the importance of it? Absolutely, Leo. So, so the, the main thing around peer mirroring is how do you match the energy of the other person? There's some exceptions to the rule, but in general, let's say, I'll give you a fun one when I'm on a podcast. I usually get three different types of hosts. So one is the super extroverted. I get on the show, the Dude, it's so good to have you. They're super loud, and I match that energy. Hey, yeah, it's so great to be here. Then you have the second type of host, which is more in your camp, Leo, more in the middle. So it's like you have a really chill vibe. You're in the middle. You're a little bit more informal. So I'm changing my, my vibe as well to match yours. And then you have the third type of host. And, and uh, I didn't do this properly when I started doing interviews, and I learned mirroring the hard way. And they would be very, very shy people who didn't want to start a podcast for like three years. And I'm like episode three. And this is when I started guesting on shows. So I'd get on the show. And I'm a very extrovert person. So I get on the show and I'd say, what's up? And they're like, hey, Brendan, it's really nice to have you on the show. And she's like a little petite woman named Paula or something. And I'm just like, oh, okay, I need a change. So I mirror and I change my energy to sound something more like, Hey, Paula, is this your first interview? She's like, yeah, I'm just getting a sort of the podcast. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Well, I'm really excited too. Let's take it one question at a time. I'm, I'm really grateful to be here with you. So notice how I completely changed my energy from like, what's up, dude, to this. And a lot of people think that's fake. I completely disagree with that. For me, it's more about we have the empathy and the, and the empathy to, to help the other person feel more comfortable. That's how I've always seen mirroring. That's one piece to mirroring. The other piece, though, which doesn't work as well, is when somebody is angry at you, like you said, right? Or you might react in a certain way, like the examples you gave earlier, Leah. So you obviously don't want to match that type of energy, or else you're adding gasoline to the fire. So instead, what you're going to do is you're going to really pay attention to your vocal tones. So if someone's yelling at you and you're going, hey, I'm so sorry you feel that way, but hey, that's life, then you're going to keep going bounce and it's going to go get out of proportion. 
versus going, hey, I'm so sorry you feel this way, but the reason I'm feeling like this is X, Y, and Z. So I'm still saying the same thing, but because I'm managing my vocal tones, the pressure is slowly moving towards my energy than the other. So then the other person automatically starts to calm down. So let's say like a client is pissed off at me. I'll, I'll start going down with my vocal tone. They'll go like, you know, actually, Brendan, it's not that big of a deal. I'm so sorry I yelled at you. But if I go, what are you talking about? The contract didn't say that. Like, I wasn't supposed to deliver that service. Are you not? Are you ridiculous, uh, crazy person? Then they'll go, then they'll keep getting mad at me. So that's the other piece to me. I love that. Um, say you are, you know, you've been invited to some social gathering. There are 100 people there. We can even say like it was like a, a wedding dress rehearsal, whatever. You know no one, and you show up alone. You do have a place at a table, right? Um, how do you initiate conversation? You know, do you just start with a hello, hi, my name is such and such, what's your name? Or is there a more interesting way for us to engage in a conversation one and then sustain the conversation for a few minutes? For sure, Leo. So there's two parts to that. One is the specific scenario you mentioned. The other one, which is more, how do you meet people in general? Which I think is easy to apply. Even if you're the most introverted person in the world, you don't even need to go to the events. Like I don't go to events that much anymore and I meet a bunch of new people all the time. And I'll tell you how. Outside of podcasting, obviously, which doesn't count because not, not everyone's going to be a podcast guest. So, so the way you approach this, Leo, is to realize, one, that you don't get to meet a lot of people in your life. If you meet somebody new every few days, which is not, not, not what most people do, for a year, you'll have met 100 new people. And if you do that for 50 years, let's say you live 50 more years than our current age, you'll only meet 5,000 people. So the question you got to ask yourself is, who do you want those 5,000 people to be out of 8 billion or 7, 7 or 8 billion? So the way you do this, is a strategy I teach called the value list. Make a list of the five people you already love in your life. People you went to college with. People who are just amazing. You always call them. They're always got your back. And I'm not saying there's a million people on this list. There's maybe three people on this list. Four, five at the very max. And try and exclude family members from this list. Really just focus on people outside of family. Here's how you apply the value list. Add more value to those five people. Do the goals call with those people, that one, that example we gave earlier. Send them video messages. Introduce them to each other. If you got four best friends and they're all amazing, they don't know each other, what a loss. Make sure they all know each other. Introduce them to each other. And then what starts to happen is you ask them, hey, make a value list and introduce me to the best people in your network. And that's how you build the relationships with the right people without wasting too much time. So all my top five, they introduced me to a bunch of different types of people. That's one. The specific example you gave, though, let me make it super easy. There's two parts. One is the obvious, you know, it's your energy. Smile, make a good first impression. Just say, hey, my name's Brendan. What's your name? And just obviously don't say your name is Brendan. They'll think you're weird if your name is not actually Brendan, but you get the idea. Hi, hi, my name is such and such. The rest of the time, what I encourage people to do is make a list of the questions you wished other people asked you and ask that to other people. And what's great about conversations is people mirror back your questions because they're lazy. So for example, if you met me in person, Leo, I'm not the guy you ask about the weather. I just go, dude, look outside. That's what the weather is. <laughs> I don't care. But, but what I want to know is what are you passionate about? What's your dream? What's your mission with this podcast? What do you want to achieve in your life? What are you excited about? 
So because I want to know that for my, I want other people to ask me that question. I just ask that to other people. And then they just go, what about you? What about you? So you just get to answer your own question, which is awesome. I, I love those. I especially love the first one when you're talking about, you know, making a list of your values in the, in the top five and then asking your top five to introduce you to another top five. I kind of did that when I started a, a men's group and it's, it was myself and six other individuals. I mean, we're now we're down to uh, five total. But, you know, we we meet once a week and, and we talk and it's because they were individuals who I knew individually. And I thought that collectively they would love to they would get along and, 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 and meld well. And that's exactly what happened. And I, but I've never thought about asking that core group to introduce me to another five individuals individually. I mean, th that would be, uh, you know, an incredible exponential growth of, of, of a network. And we know that loneliness, especially amongst men, is so tough right now, especially as you get older, where they talk about women, you know, are, are more likely to build lateral connections and men build more hierarchical connections where it's like, I'm your boss or you're my subordinate or et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Brendan, what's your biggest challenge right now in life in general? Hmm. In life in general, what's my biggest challenge right now? I mean, obviously I have a lot of challenges. I would say more personally, one of, one of the fears I have is commitment, you know, being in a romantic relationship. I'm really good at business, really good at health, but I've always been fearful of commitment, getting into relationships. So I don't spend as much time as I need to dating. And the way that I've, I've compromised with myself on this is, is get to the business. I'm probably a year or two out of this where I have, I have so much business where even if I didn't have the pedal to the gas, I'd still do well financially. And then I'm just going to spend the rest of my 20s dating girls. <laughs> That's probably my biggest challenge. <laughs> yeah, because how old are you right now? I'm uh, 26 turning 27 next month. So, so here's what's interesting. And please, uh, you know, tell me how you feel about what your thoughts are on this. I realize that when we talk about commitment issues, because I've, I've been told that I have the same thing, being a girl, been together for four years, and people are like, why aren't you married? And I realize there's three levels of commitment issues. One is um, the fear of commitment, right? Of, of getting involved in something that's going to be all-consuming, i.e. a relationship. Um, and then there is the overcommitment, where you're involved in something, you're committed to something, and it, you overextend yourself right? You burn yourself out. This is the person who's showing up early, staying late. Um, and you're doing this thing at the exclusion of everything else. Like you're just overcommitted. And then, uh, there's the person who gets in and then has a hard time getting out. So the first person doesn't get in at all. The second person has problems setting boundaries within the thing that they're involved in. And the second person, uh, commitment issue is is being able to leave once they're committed out of a fear of you know maybe they're people pleasing or the repercussions etc cetera, etc cetera. for you is it the the fear of getting in is it the fear of maybe not knowing if you'll be able to get out or what what have you, have you identified specifically what the fear is yeah for sure Leo. you know i think for me one of the challenges I've had around this is that a lot of the people I admire have failed relationships, 
right? So, so statistically, most people are not happy in relationships, just numbers wise. And you know how how much of an analytical mind I have because I'm I'm, a, I'm an accounting, and and just just to push the the joke further, like for me, if you look at the big three kind of pillars of life, relationships, romantic specifically, obviously there's friendships too. That in that case, I don't really have much issue there. Health and and money, but money and health are the only guaranteed outcomes. Okay, money, it's like okay, get a great job. You get a set of responsibilities, you have a guaranteed set of income, provided you're talented enough to execute on those roles and you have backup plans if you get fired, things like that. Or in business, provided you're talented enough. Hey, look, if you send a thousand DMs a day at the hundred DMs a day and you're really, really aggressive and you're talented enough, you'll probably win in business. Relationships aren't like that, unfortunately. Of course, there's some there's some of that, which is so true, which is like, hey, if you invest in, in the right person, you take care of them. And I've done that with my mom and my sister and pretty much every relationship in my life. But if you pick the wrong partner by accident or something goes wrong, you might end up. And, I, and by the way, I could there's a lot of limiting beliefs in my own share, by the way, that I'm still working through that you could that you could end up in a situation where like. Like this doesn't work out. You had spent eight years trying to build this castle with somebody. So, so for me, that's why I've always been reluctant because there's kind of like two philosophies I think through this and there's probably more than two, but just the way my mind works right now, the, the two models are the first one is you kind of find the partner right now and you suffer through the business as you have the relationship. So that way, when you're successful in business, you know, the partner next to you is the right person. That's kind of one model. The other model of the world, which is the one I ascribe to more is you build the castle first and then when you enter the relationship you suffer a lot less you still suffer you still have to you have to push through some of the the growing pains but there's no money issues in the relationship so so i just went with model two but we'll see how it works out you know i might be alone at 37 so let's hope that doesn't happen <laughs> well i'm sure your your communication skills that that won't be so much of an, an issue um yeah, but but, but you know, you're, you said something earlier about the friends and the people that you know are either not happy in their relationships or the, the relationships are dissolving. And I just recently have been intentional about making sure that what I'm consuming, whether it's uh, movies, podcasts, TV, that I'm I'm consuming or watching or absorbing healthy relationships or at least relationships that um, show me the full process and not an exaggerated version that, you know, because like romantic comedies, that's exaggerated, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, horror movies or like Law and Order SVU. I used to watch a lot, a lot of Law and Order SVU and I realized I'm just watching Prey and Predator. Right. And that's not how I want to operate through the world. Um, and so I, I try to absorb material uh, that is going to feed my view of what a, a relationship or marriage could be. And it's difficult because how do you sell books, TVs, magazines, except through obstacles and challenges and drama? Right. Um and so that, you know, I had to go to the farmer's market every now and again to, to watch like healthy interactions and be like, oh, OK, not everybody's like, you know, trying to it's not like not everybody's in this Game of Thrones scenario where it's like you're worried about being literally stabbed in the back or beheaded by your spouse, you know. <laughs> 
So, so actually, that was my, my question back to you, Leo, besides the farmer's market, which I agree, that's a great one. Is, is there any relationship that you really look up to? You're like, oh, these people I really like. You know, to be honest, there's not a specific relationship I look up to. What I realize is that um, I try to collect parts of relationships. So, for instance, my sister and her boyfriend are, are visiting right now. And talking to him, he talks about how he'll schedule something in the calendar for a date night with my sister, right? And he'll put it in as TBD, like to be discussed. And I was like, wow, that's such a great way of letting your significant other know that you're thinking about them and saying, here are some options. Nothing is in stone versus feeling like I have to come up with all the answers of what we're going to do together. It's just like, hey, there's this thing that's happening on this night, put it in the calendar. And then, you know, you don't have to really think about discussing it because it's in the calendar and then it's in a shared calendar and then you can bring that up. Um, so there's that. And then there's also like when I look at Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, she talked about how she felt like a stay at home wife for so many years because he was so busy working. So that to me, you know, you could say, well, that's not healthy, but it lets me know that it's part of, being in a long-term relationship with someone who, you know, one person is working, another person staying home. Like, because sometimes you can go through an experience and feel like, am I the only one experiencing this? And that's where the loneliness, I feel like, comes in. Oh, yeah. And, and that's really the key. There's so many different complexities to relationships. Like, I really like Tom Billy's relationship with his wife. But the big challenge they have is they don't have children. So if I want kids, like the dynamic changes completely in that relationship. And then in, in Michelle and Brock's case, so I know that story too. But then there's the whole like, what is actually going behind the scenes in their marriage? Because they're both politicians, right? So you're kind of, so part of you still questions it because you don't, at least I do, because I don't really know the two. So I think that's that's the idea. It's a, it's a game that's a lot harder to optimize, but I'm sure we'll figure it out. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I'm like, I, I I can't wait till they die so I could read the book that comes out after. It was like the, the behind. <laughs> the, right. Because like you said, they're politicians, you know, and so they, they, they got to paint it in a certain, you know, glossy tone. But, you know, it's after they die that you get like the real like it's like when Anthony Bourdain died. It was like, oh, damn. Now we get the text messages. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> we, we found out. All, all the different things that, that was going on behind the scenes. I have a feeling you're going to get canceled for at least. I'm really excited for people to die, guys. I was like, maybe not. not maybe not the best thing to do in a suicide. Pro- don't die, guys. You'll be okay. Just live a Well, just don't life. end your life. You know, like I'm talking about like car accident or, you know, they, they get cholera or extreme tuberculosis or something like that. <laughs> You sound, like a, you sound like the host of like a thousand one ways to die. You're like, oh, what are the different ways that people could die on the tuberculosis? Maybe we could get somebody to drown in the bathtub. Well, you, you know what it is? I've, I've been reading a lot of uh, classic uh, Russian literature from Anna Karenina to, um, you know, uh, uh, Dr. Zhivago, um, War and Peace. It, you know, when you're reading these, it's so dark. Like, you know, these Russians, they people are just dying all the time from everything from water from murder from age from lonely like so it's 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 at the forefront you know 
and I'm going to pick up Tale of Two Cities pretty soon. So I'm definitely going to have a list of ways that people can die <laughs> after that. <laughs> um, you, you talk, so you, you're, you're 27, you said, or 26? 26 turning 26. I'll be 27 by the time. This and so, I, I, so I'm really fascinated by this because you, you mentioned that you're also living at home with your sister, correct? With your mom and your sister. That's and correct. my Uber driver in Vegas, Filipino, and, and said that uh, his son is 29, the daughter's 23, and they still live at home with their parents. And, and I was like, why? And, you know, because that's my American brain. And he goes, because they're not married yet. That's why. And I was like, oh, okay. All right. That's a cultural uh, thing. And I realized, like, so much anxiety and depression in kids is coming from the parents. Like, as soon as you turn 18, you got to get out of here. You're out, you better grow up soon. You're going to be too old to be doing that. And, and here my boy Brendan from Master Talk is at the house with moms, with the sister. Um, what's his name? Creed. Who's the fighter from Creed? Uh, Michael with, B. Jordan. Michael B. Jordan. He yeah. was living with his moms up through like recently or something like that. Oh, I didn't know that. That's yeah. Oh, at least that's what he said. Like you said, we don't know. We have to wait till he dies. And for, for some it. reason, I trust Michael B. Jordan. You know, the reason I don't trust the politicians, because there's a story around Michelle Obama where she was like, she was asked, hey, what school do you, should your daughters go to? And she said, oh, I'd be happy if they went to any university. I was like, come on. That's obviously a lie. Of course you want them to go to Harvard or Princeton or Yale. Like, don't lie to us. <laughs> right, you, right. You don't, yeah, you don't want them going to community, like Harvard Community College. Come on, let's yeah, be honest. Like, come on, let's be honest. <laughs> but Michael so, B hasn't really done that. That's why I trust him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's, he's definitely saying there's something like, um, uh, yeah, trustworthy about them, but authentic is, is uh, the word that comes to mind. So your decision to to stay at home, can you, can, if you if you're open to sharing, what what guided that decision? You can probably guess I'm pretty open as a guy. So so yes, a couple of things, couple of things. So so one is just purely cultural, right? You know, you you're the the Filipino Uber driver is right. A lot of a lot of immigrant families do that with their children. And the reason is just because it helps us save money. It just creates a lot of advantage. That's why you'll, if you look up in the U.S., Patrick but David did a great video on this, on who, which households have the highest median incomes in the U.S. And white is all the way at the bottom. And the reason is because of the mindset. I'm not trying to be racist here by any means, but it's really just the mindset that a lot of people have that I really think is such a bad thing to do with children, which is... Hey, if you're 18, you gotta you gotta leave. It's like, oh, all of a sudden you're not supporting me anymore. And that really bites them in the ass later in life. Cause then when they get much older and people and then their children go, Well, you didn't really take care of me. Why should I take care of you? And it creates a lot of animosity in relationships. Whereas our perspective always, whether it's an Indian culture, most immigrant families, is you know, the parents take care of the kids until they're married. But then when they're married, they take care of the parents. Like my mom's retired. now; She doesn't work. She just plays in the garden and doesn't have to work in a factory. So, so that's the whole misconception of, oh, Brendan lives in his basement. He must be mooching off his mom. No, I pay all the bills, actually. I'm the only <laughs> breadwinner of the family, right? But she took care of me mostly, so I take care of her. So that's the first one. The, the second reason is to spend more time with family. There's a great quote, uh, not quote, but blog post by a guy named Tim Urban. He's the author of the book. Wait, uh, the blog rather, wait, but why? 
And there's a there's one of the blog posts that he wrote around how 80%, I believe was the number, of the time you spend with your parents is between the ages of zero and 25. So then after you leave the house, you see them like 10 times less. So a big regret a lot of older people have is they only get, visit their parents like when they're passing, like when they're at they're in that window. Whereas for me, I wanted to spend as much time as possible with my mom. It was really important to me because I didn't, and I also didn't want to live on my own, which goes to the last reason. But so for me, it was more about saying, hey, let's create that environment where I can just spend as much time with her as possible. Like even when I get married, I'm going to buy a house like nearby, which is the, the third reason. One of the benefits of living with your mom and you retire her is you don't have to do any chores. So I'm 100% focused on the business. I don't do ditches. I don't have to clean. I don't have to cook. I literally have to do nothing. All I have to do is pay for everything, which is obviously a huge burden, but it's not that bad because I figured it out. So that's that's the trade-off. And the other piece as well is my mom's going to be my my kid's caretaker. So my wife doesn't have to struggle too much when I have one. So yeah, that's the summary. Man, I love the plan, Sam. And I'm, I'm <laughs> mad. I'm mad that uh, we didn't meet when I was 18 or something <laughs> i would have said dude you can't you can't doesn't matter what the girlfriend wants she really wants to marry you she wants to be with she'll wait just save your rent money and <laughs> put it in index funds oh man 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 uh is there anything that we haven't talked about brendan that you you think that would be valuable to, to listeners out there in terms of communication or uh, just connecting with other people yeah, for sure, Leo. You know, I think for me, what's what's worked well in my life, especially given the 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 situation, the podcast theme that you have, two, two strategies I'll leave you with. One is how do I increase my level of happiness on a day to day basis? You might have shared this tip before, but I'll just share it just in case it hasn't been said. It's called the bliss list where you make a list of small little things that bring you joy on a day-to-day basis. So I'll give an example, my cheat meal on Saturdays, my UFC card that I love to watch all the time with my sister. Uh, karaoke, I can karaoke in different languages. So karaoke in my basement, dancing alone in that basement, listening to podcasts. And what I do is I intentionally sprinkle those things across my calendar. You don't really need to do a lot of big things to stay happy. Just add a couple of more of those little things. And for you, it's going to be different who's listening to the pod. It might be reading books, having more alone time, walking your dog. For me, I don't really need that stuff, but you kind of just pick what you like. Just do a little bit more of that. That's blissless. The second thing that I think has really helped my happiness is to try your best as a human being to live as authentically to the decisions you would have made if you didn't have outside influences. I call this be insane or be the same, which is if you want to be like everyone else, that's totally fine. But if you want to do something special with your life, you want to do something important, you need to realize the people who do something important. And I don't mean important in the context of being the next Nelson Mandela. I mean important in the sense of living a life that's fully authentic to you is you need to realize the only way to that path is what I call the path of insanity. I mean, isn't it bizarre, man? You're having a conversation with a kid who started a YouTube channel at 22, not on pranks, not on music videos, not on being a rapper, but on executive communication tips in his mother's basement. Then he wanted to coach all these high-level CEOs, made good money, enough to provide for his family. Yet, he still lives in his mother's basement. He's scared to drive a car, but he bought it for his sister, so she drives him around all the time. He's in the top 1% of all listeners on Spotify for Justin Bieber. 
and in karaoke is in eight different languages. How does any of this make any sense? But I think that's the point, Leo. When every decision in your life makes sense to the only person that it should, which is you, you're probably making the right decisions in your life. So be insane or be the same. Because there might be people in your life who want you to live another way except how you're supposed to live your life. But what they don't realize is if you don't live your life authentically to who you want to be, you're actually going to cause them more pain in the long term because you might make bad decisions through life. And hopefully the worst doesn't happen. But that's my advice. Be insane or be the same. Man, I love that. And and last question. I mean, really, if I didn't have to ask this question, I would end the podcast there. But um, the last question is I ask this of all my guests because I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Brendan? Before you kill yourself, what advice would I say to them? I would say... Sit yourself down and write down on a piece of paper the 25 things in your life that you're the most proud of, that you're really happy about, that really brought you a lot of joy. So for me, it was retiring my mom, right? That was something that I was really proud of. And when you write those things down, my hope is that you realize that you're supposed to live a little bit longer to achieve another 25 more and another 25 more. And another 25 more. And it would be a shame if you stopped at 25. I love that. Thank you so much, Brendan. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you calling the 988 or any of the international phone numbers, whether you're in Montreal or whether you're in China or Chile, wherever you are in the world, there are international phone numbers. You can call, chat, text. You can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. And make sure you check out Brendan on Master Talk. Check him out, mastertalk.ca, or you can go to YouTube and uh, and just type in uh, Master Talk and check my boy out. Peace. Thank you so much, Brendan. Thanks, man.